Welcome back to the Harvard Center for International Development's bi-weekly speaker series podcast. This week we are joined by Alex Peterson Zwane, Chief Executive Officer of the Global Innovation Fund. I'm sitting down with her after her virtual appearance at the Harvard Kennedy School on March 12, 2021, where she discussed the Honesty Agenda, Effective Assistance, Women's Empowerment, and SDGs in a Post-COVID World. Thank you so much for uh, joining us, uh, Alex. Can you just begin by um, telling us a little bit about what you presented to the Harvard Kennedy School today? Sure, I'd be happy to. And it's really a pleasure to be here and um, to be back at the Kennedy School, albeit uh, virtually as an alumni myself. So today I, I tried to make two points today in the conversation. Um, first, to get the development impact we all want to see. Investors, including the US government, need to fund infrastructure as well as social improvements. To demonstrate this point, I talked about the importance of cash transfers as an essential element of humanitarian response and an excellent use of philanthropic funds, but not really sufficiently ambitious for bilateral and multilateral assistance and for addressing the most pressing development challenges we face globally. Cash alone just doesn't get people the things that they need for their prosperity and well-being. For that, you need quality public services and productive, dignified jobs, and you need suitable and sustainable infrastructure. Uh, And in the week in which we are marked International Women's Day, I was also pleased to be able to talk about the importance of ensuring that women and girls are the protagonists of their own story. When we think about driving for gender equality and global development, It's essential that we work with partners who really understand the local context and the specific local challenges. GIF has funded Breakthrough. It's a nonprofit organization that's tackling gender equality and violence against women in India through an in-school program that teaches girls and boys about the behaviors that are and aren't okay. You can imagine how happy I was to read this week that Breakthrough's work is scaling up and into more government schools through their strategic partnership with the government of Punjab. This is exactly the sort of locally led initiative I'm pleased that we can support and that I'd love to see more development assistance supporting as well. I talked about the fact that we shouldn't put our thumb on the scale in favor of particular prioritizations of social protection programs or poverty reduction programs. And we need to let messy domestic conversations determine some of those priorities. We can help the platforms on which those services are delivered work more effectively. We can uh, support the quality of public service delivery in general um, without picking and choosing which things should come first. And then I finished with something I guess is a call to action that I'll repeat here. As we emerge from the pandemic, we have the opportunity to build back an ambition and an honest global development agenda to recover lost progress and ensure that development programming prioritizes growth and supporting local actors to deliver effective public services. Innovation's very much at the heart of what comes next. but that's only one piece of the honesty agenda. And we can really be honest, more honest about what the aid budgets can achieve. That sounds absolutely fascinating. I'm very glad that you were able to shed some light on this. 
Um, following up with that, what do you think was the most surprising um, conclusion or detail either to you or maybe to um, the listeners? So one topic that I talked a little bit about going back to this gender question. You know, I do believe that when we as people who fund development put our thumb on the scale in terms of a particular priority of you know, nutrition over water and sanitation or, you know, uh, or vice versa, that we can actually get in the way of local accountability feedback loops. Um, and this can be exacerbated when, you know, we fund programs that sort of go around the state, you know, so you avoid working with government and work directly with NGOs. Um, but the one place where that does sit a little differently with me is in this space of gender empowerment. It's just the fact that, you know, rates of violence against women, child marriage, uh, women's representation in decision-making structures, those things are just too low to believe that women's voices are heard in the discussions about what's prioritized, whether that's at the household level or at, a, at a, some bigger macro scale. And so if you, you followed my line of argument to its extreme conclusion, those priorities that you're saying are locally set would not fully represent the voice of, you know, half of humanity in that context. Um, and so there is this tension between the values around supporting agency for women and girls, transformation around gender, and being truly, you know, humble and respectful about supporting local accountability um, mechanisms. And so the breakthrough example that I talked about before, I think that that does point to a way forward where you can balance those two things together. You know, the program that Breakthrough delivers in schools is designed by them with the kid, with kids in their communities. Um, and our support for them is not to change how the program's delivered. It's to help them generate the data and learnings that help them to expand their own program on the platform of government schools. So it will be, you know, there has to be demand from the public sector, supply from breakthrough, which is a local and locally mediated discussion and conversation for them to be able to achieve scale. And so I think that is an example of how you can be in that, live with the tension between um, an agnostic approach, but still wanting everybody's voice to be heard. That's definitely a really um, just interesting thought hearing you talk about it, even for me. To follow up on that a little bit, if policymakers could enact something tomorrow, if you could get the government to pass something tomorrow, um, what would it be to support um, organizations such as yours with the Global Innovation Fund? Well, the space that GIF is playing in, in the development financing landscape, so we're trying to address that funding gap that exists for innovators and entrepreneurs as they make their journey from proof of concept or pilot stage through to delivering impact at scale. There's a kind of valley of death there in which you have got some interesting ideas and interesting approach, 
but you don't have your pro your innovation embedded in existing systems. So take the breakthrough example again that we've been talking about. You know, they've been working in Haryana. They've sort of built out what their program looks like. They've participated in a randomized controlled trial with the Poverty Action Lab um, to get some rigorous evidence of impact. Um, and they're ready to go to the next scale, level of scale. But you know, if the ultimate end goal is this approach to teaching adolescents is embedded in government syllabus and government teaching, if that's truly scale, well, there's quite a chasm in between there, uh, between where we are today and where you'd want to say you should be for truly sustainable scale. And, and bridging over that valley of death is when you need money um, and patience and support for moving out of experimentation, trying to get the details of implementation right in a way that facilitates that end goal of service delivery by not a highly motivated NGO, but by you know, your average government teacher. Um, I sometimes have talked about that as funding, fund the missing middle. And we probably don't spend enough of our, our resources in, in that space. Um, so I think some of my advice for policymakers is to think about that. What prevents you from funding in that missing middle? You know, are you really good at writing very big checks, you know, to Gavi, um, and really good at funding pilots that never fail and never scale? Well, how come then? How come those are places where your money seems to rest well, but it doesn't rest so easily in that missing middle space? That's where I really think there's some, some opportunity. Um, and I'll just say to end that is that there's actually some pretty good evidence of that. The um, Development Innovation Ventures at USAID, which is sort of a sister organization to GIF and GIF have both completed calculations where we've tried to calculate at least a lower bound on the social return on investment of the resources we've deployed. And in both cases, it looks like we've recovered our costs in terms of the social value we've generated exceeds the cost of our portfolio and the cost of creating that portfolio. And the rate of return appears to be higher than traditional aid too. So I think we're underfunding innovation and we're underfunding in the, the missing middle. And I would hope that policymakers in this space can, can, if I had a wish list, it'd be think about how to change some of your own policies and procurement procedures, et cetera, that would allow you to play more in that space too. Wow, that is absolutely amazing. To follow up on that a little bit, you're engaging so many different stakeholders and so many different actors to be able to do this. I just have to ask, like, how do you do it? Like, how are you able to maintain this uh, just big cooperation with what it seems like? GIF is backed by a range of donor stakeholders. So we were launched by the government of the US and the UK as a partnership, um, building in part on the success of development innovation ventures at USAID. Then we have since been joined by Sweden, Australia, 
Canada, South Africa, um, a couple of corporate partners and a couple of philanthropies back us. And so it's, for me, it's been a wonderful educational journey to learn about the particular ways each of these governments work. And I really got into expand my uh, cross-cultural um, understanding and knowledge and really respectful sensitivity um, towards the different needs of different um, governments. And so I've, I've learned so much um, from, the, from doing that. I, I guess I would say that the, the real benefit I think that you see of this multilateral approach um, to funding innovation, I'll mention two things. One is it's actually a risk mitigation strategy. You know, part of why funding innovation can be hard is because sometimes things fail. And, you know, GAF is no exception to that. We have things we've tried in our portfolio that didn't work out. Um, and that can be difficult to explain politically. Um, but with an arm's length organization, that risk is shared by all the partners there. And there's a clear line of accountability to the independent organization. So I think that uh, that's part of what makes the multilateralism really valuable um, so, and having all these stakeholders and the challenges of working with them um, worth it. And then number two is, you know, there's all these opportunities for lesson learning for the funders themselves when they gather at our board table or annual performance review or something like that. They get to learn lessons from each other too around this space of innovation. And so we're sort of driving down those costs of sharing and learning together. Um, so so I, I'm, I'm a huge fan of multilateralism in funding innovation, even if it does mean, yeah, I've got a lot of stakeholders um, to, to bring along. I'm really happy to hear that. And I'm glad you explained it to me. It makes a lot more sense when you actually start to grasp the concept a little bit. Out of curiosity, in terms of how you've been dealing with COVID, how has the Global Innovation Fund adapted to like the more virtual setting? Is there anything that you've liked, don't like, something, some things you'll keep, or some things you're really ready to go back to? Like, what's been going on with COVID? Yeah. Wow. So I guess it was. It must have been in March of last year, as the sort of scope of all of this was becoming clear. Um. And we realized all of our plans for the you know 2020 were out the window. We we took a moment and pushed pause and said, how should we respond? Um, and the first thing we said was protect our existing portfolio. You know, in January, we thought we were on track to improve the lives of 90 million people. That's our most precious asset. We need to protect that asset. And so we worked really closely and creatively with companies in our, that we're invested in and NGOs we're backing to sort of see them through 2020. And you know, because there are gonna be a lot of firms who are gonna face liquidity crises. It's hard to tell the difference between ill liquid situations and insolvent positions. You know, should this, you know, did this just identify a company that was gonna go under anyway? Or is this, you know, a random act of God and a very good company is just facing a cash crunch and they should not go under. And so we did a lot of work on that um, with the companies in our portfolio. Um, 
And then we said, we're going to respond to the pandemic. We are, we are still open for business. And so we did quite a lot of grant making last year. We invested even in some companies who we thought actually had a COVID proof business strategy. And, and, and very much we did not go into a defensive crouch and still tried to have a spirit of abundance. The third thing we said to ourselves was we need to emerge resilient. Um, and that's both about our people, as you said, but also about our mission um, and making sure that the way we position innovation and development is as meaningful post-COVID as it was before it. Um, and I, as I said in the talk that I gave today, I actually think you know innovation is more important than ever. If we lost 25 years of progress in reducing poverty in one year, and we are no way are we taking 25 years to get that back, we're going to have to do things differently. Um, and so, you know, I really want to position us to be part of what that that differently means. I do think we'll, you know, keep more remote work than we do, than we had before. I think we'll do less international travel than we did before. I don't think that'll go to zero, but I, you know, I definitely think we've shown you can do a lot of stuff like we're doing this here um, that we didn't know before. But I'm definitely really looking forward to um, continuing to to, <laughs> to getting out of the house more myself and um, partly also with just with our government partners down the road um, to be able to really lock arms in this you know next phase of our challenge of building back. That sounds really, really hopeful. I'm, I definitely hope you do uh, go outside <laughs> at the very <laughs> least on that board. Well, yeah, let me not exaggerate there. I can go outside. <laughs> Uh, well, you know, as a wrap, uh, just a uh, wrapping up thought, um, I wanted to ask you uh, if you had any advice for um, the listeners, and they might be students like me, they might be people uh, further along in their educational and career path, but for those who are interested in pursuing um, a line of work similar to yours, even though it's a bit unique, what advice would you give? Oh, well, well thank you for asking me that. You know, I met just before we talked, I met with some of the students at the Kennedy School, actually, who were asking me some similar kinds of questions. And you know, one thing I said, and I think, and this is true, whatever sector you're working in, is, you know, I think you're happiest when your personal values align with the values that are playing out where you work. And so to do the self-reflection that helps you to make that assessment, I think it is, is really important. Um, for me personally, you know, my core value is justice. And I've left jobs where it just wasn't, that wasn't sufficiently alive um, and at the forefront of the work that, that I was being asked to do. And that made me happier. <laughs> um, and uh, so, you know, that's definitely one thing I would, I just would say to, to everybody. Um, and on the particular point about international development, I would want to just remind people that there's many, many paths to contributing to the challenge that all people deserve a chance to live healthy and productive lives. Um, and that very much can be in the private sector it can be in the nonprofit or government sector. Um, but, you know, 
don't limit yourself to thinking that if, if that challenge excites you, that that implies that you must be, you know, in, in a sort of traditional aid NGO or something like that. Um, I've been, you know, over my career, I've been, you know, in innovation and investing, philanthropist, technologist, you know, I think you can do any or all of those things um, and really contribute to, to the challenge of international development. Thanks again to Alex for making the time to speak with us today. You can find more information about her work with the Global Innovation Fund at www.globalinnovation.fund. You can also learn more about the Center for International Development and CID's research and upcoming events at cid.harvard.edu. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you back soon.